Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue through our study of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 in particular. If using one of the blue chair Bibles, it's on page 810. To begin our thoughts this morning, I want to talk a little bit about the very serious topic of board games. At our house, we like to play board games. Many of you, I know, like to play board games. And specifically, I like to play new games, whether they're new to me or new to the other people that I'm playing with. But there's a real challenge when you break out a new game. How do you explain the game well so that people will have a good time playing without spending all of your time explaining the game? I found a helpful pattern for this. Number one, explain the objective of the game. Whether it's reaching a certain amount of points or finishing a path along the board, usually the objective of a game is a pretty simple idea. Secondly, begin to explain the rules beginning with the most important ones. This is where it is helpful to have at least one person who's played the game before when you're introducing a new game. If you've played the game before, and if there are others who have also played who can help you prioritize the rules, you can list the most foundational rules first so that people can at a very minimum understand and begin to pick up the game with relative ease. And thirdly, have a detailed rule book available. While you might be able to prioritize the rules, there are always extra questions or points of confusion where a nicely written set of rules can help fill in the gaps or be referenced during the game for those specific circumstances you didn't just quite think of at the beginning or in case, even though you did such a good job explaining it, someone forgot what you said. Now, this is not... Again, just an encouragement to play more board games, which, that's a fine thing to do. But I want to take this basic pattern and apply it to our text. In our passage from last week, Jesus worked through a set of statements we call the Beatitudes that focused on values and ways of living for his followers, primarily looking at issues of character as to what should a follower of Jesus look like. And I think there's a connection to our text today in that it begins to answer this question, what now, or how do I live those out? So if we saw in the Beatitudes, this is the type of person we should be, the type of character we should have, what we transition to in these next verses is what does that look like in our daily lives? What do I do with these values and these characteristics? Again, going back to this idea of the objective of a game, what is the goal we should be pursuing as we live out this Christ-like character? And in the second half, analogous to the ideas of rules and a rule book, we're going to be talking a little bit about the nature of the Word of God and how that helps us to understand 
that God has written down for us a book that helps us know how we should live out our faith in God's world. But also, just to be truthful, it'll set the stage for the later parts of the Sermon on the Mount, which focus on specific commands and how they should be lived out. So in some ways, it is a transitionary passage. So let's start with this idea of what is the objective of our lives. And that's going to be found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, where we're going to talk about living as a witness in our world. And Paul's going to use two metaphors here. One is salt and one is light. So let's first look at salt in verse 13. So follow along as I read, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now to help our imagination engage with this word picture without getting carried away by our imagination, we must think about what is good about salt. And specifically, we need to think about how salt was used in the time of Jesus. So just as today, salt was used to add flavor to food. We can picture our salt shaker at home or the process. I know Steve is very proud of his process of brining a turkey. You can ask him about that later. But that's how we normally use salt in causing there to be better flavor. But specifically, in the time of Jesus, it was also used as a preservative. Okay, this is a world before refrigeration. I know some of us cannot comprehend a world before refrigeration. But because of this, as one author writes, its use in culture was that it was rubbed into meat, a little salt would slow decay. But what if salt loses its saltiness? Jesus answers his own question there in verse 13. It is no longer good for anything. The phrase, except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet, has two possible references. One is that in that culture, savorless salt was scattered on the soil of flat roofs that helped harden the soil and prevent leaks. It also could simply be a reference to be thrown out into the street as trash. But either way, the main point is clear. Unsalty salt is pretty worthless. In a similar passage in Luke 14, Jesus says this, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. There's some historical evidence that salt was actually used as a preservative with manure to slow fermentation. But not to put too fine a point on it, salt is pretty worthless if it can't even improve manure. The whole point of salt is to be salty. So it comes to the next natural question. In what ways are God's people salt? Like salt, we are to be a force of preservation and flavor in a world of decay. As one author writes about this, Christians are, quote, called to be a moral disinfectant 
in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent. Can I connect this description to what came before and what comes after for some clarity? Being salty is living out the Christian life, one summary of which is the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes. We are salty when we are merciful, when we are pursuing righteousness, when we are poor in spirit, when we are meek. And we are to do this as a witness to the world in which we live, which is going to become more explicit in the following verses. The description of us being salt is a call to live out our lives of Christian virtue following Jesus in a way that brings life to a world full of death and decay. If we only read the Beatitudes, if that was all we had, it would be pretty easy to have a monastic mindset of just my job as a follower of Jesus is to be alone and to grow in these virtues. But this verse and what follows tells us that we are to live lives of Christian virtue in our communities and in our world. We are not to hide from the world. We are to be salt, being people who bring life and flavor to this world. And if you are not living out your faith in this world, then you have lost your saltiness. Let's look at the second picture of light in verses 14 to 16. Follow along as I read, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here, Jesus switches metaphors and calls his followers the light of the world. He then gives examples of light in the ancient world. Again, we need to go back into that world, a world before light bulbs. First, he talks about a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city was a source of light in two major ways. First, during the day, because, as one author writes, often built of white limestone, ancient towns gleamed in the sun and could not easily be hidden. And secondly, because there were no other sources of light outside the cities, any lamps or fires concentrated together in the homes of the city would cause the city to glow like a beacon at night. One of the ways I picture this, and Dave, this is that first picture that you are so ready to put up. When I read this, I think of this map. And I know it's a little hard for you all to see, but I'll tell you what it is and describe it to you. This is a picture of our country taken at night. And you see those big yellow orbs? Those are the major cities. These concentrations of light. This is what it means to be a city on a hill that cannot easily be hidden. Jesus then speaks of lighting a lamp. Now again, remember, this is the days before the electric light bulb. Think of the last blackout we had, and then picture using only candles 
to bring light to your house. So we see verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it on a bas- under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It would be a complete waste of candles, or for the time of Jesus, lamp oil, to light a lamp and then cover it up. You would never light a lamp, and as the children's song says, hide it under a bushel, emphatically no. This picture, in fact, allows us then for Jesus to make application to us. It would be ridiculous to light a lamp only to cover it up. And it would be similarly ridiculous. Verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. In the same way, we would never cover a lamp in a dark house. Why would you cover your light of living out your faith in Jesus to this world? Let your light shine before others. Now, there's a couple of questions we need to think through on this. The first is, what is our light? And what does it mean for you and I to shine? First, we see the purpose of this. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to live in such a way that when people see us following Jesus, it would cause them to worship God. I want to come back to that idea because I want you to feel the weight of that. That I am living in such a way that people would feel compelled to worship God because of what they see in my life is an extremely high standard. But it is one we are called to. But a couple things to note with this. Number one, for people to see your good works, they have to see you. We are not called to hide or run away from this world. We are to live for Jesus in it. This connects back to not covering the lamp. I love this convicting quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer that I found in my studies. He says this, A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. God's people are not to be afraid of this world. We are not hateful of this world. We are called to live out our faith in this world as a part of our witness. And that's the second thing I want us to notice here, the witnessing nature of our lives. Look at the purpose of living out our faith in public. We are to live in such a way that causes people to worship God. This is a helpful way to think about our actions and our decisions. What you do and say will either push people towards Jesus or away from Jesus. We are called to live in such a way that everything we do pushes people towards 
Jesus. Again, we can think of what was just listed before this in the Beatitudes as examples of this. That speaking the truth in love, that being merciful, that pursuing righteousness, that being a peacemaker, that as we live that out in our communities and in our world, that that would cause people to place their faith in Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves this question, is how I'm living causing people to want to follow Jesus? Or is how I'm living causing people to run away from Jesus and the church? Can I give you a simple category for this that I've seen recently with some frequency, both in my life and in the lives of some of you? Our world is so full of anger and fight that people are commenting to me about a believer in Jesus treating them well and without anger, especially in the midst of disagreement. And that time and time again, I am hearing feedback about people doing the simple action of loving someone with whom they disagree and treating them with respect because that has become rare and unexpected. This is one simple way we can live out our faith. How wonderful it would be if Christians could be known as people who love, even in a time of what feels like some of the greatest cultural polarization we've ever seen. And I want you to ponder this. Again, as people talk to me about these things, that even the most simple actions like showing mercy can be viewed as extraordinary. Love like that will encourage people towards Jesus. I want to close up this section of the text with a fun picture for you using this idea of light. When I first sat down to read this for this week, I had this question, how are we the light of the world if Jesus calls himself the light of the world in John chapter 8? Well, which one is it? Are we the light of the world or is Jesus? Because that seems to me a significant distinction. Here's how I think we should understand it. In one sense, we are not actually the light of the world. But rather, we are the light of the world in the sense that we magnify Jesus, who is the light of the world. We are only the light because we are showing Jesus the light. This picture here, if you can look closely, some of you would notice this is the inside of the Muckleteal Lighthouse. I tried to go local for y'all. What you're seeing here is called a Fresnel lens. If you want to look that up, you can, you can type that into your Google machines. Not now, but later. But let me give you a simplified explanation of how lighthouses work using this here. There's a light source in the middle, and built around the light source is what you see here are these lenses. Again, this one is specifically called a Fresnel lens. And what it does is the lens around the light source magnifies it out and concentrates it to be used as a lighthouse. We work in a similar way. I want you to picture the church 
over time and across the world as tiny parts of a big glass lens. That God uses us together as individuals and as the church to magnify the light of Jesus out to the world. It's both encouraging and it's humbling. You are the lens through which Jesus shines. But you are also only the lens through which Jesus shines. We are both encouraged that God uses us for his message of the good news of forgiveness and salvation. But we don't preach ourselves, we preach the light of Jesus. We are the lens through which the light of Jesus goes out into our dark world. We are called to bring the light of Jesus through our words and our actions to those who do not know Jesus. And I need you to see the essential nature of witnessing to our lives. This is not optional. It's essential as light shining, and it's essential as salt being salty. We are called to bring the light of Jesus to this world. We are not to hide it under a bushel. We are to be a city on a hill, a lamp on a table. We are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's at this point that Jesus turns to his next topic. And again, as you think through the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's very appropriate to see how Jesus moves from topic to topic, almost mini-sermon to mini-sermon. But let's look at what Jesus says, because he's going to start talking about the Word of God as it relates to him and his ministry. So let's look at verses 17 to 20. Uh, beginning of verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now what follows from 17 to 20 is looking at specific commands where Jesus is both going to expand our understanding of those commands, but also intensify some of those commands. And, and that will become in the following weeks. But before he gets to those specific commands, he's going to talk about his relationship to what we refer to as the Old Testament. Now you see there, right in verse 17, he talks about the law and the prophets. And that's one way that the New Testament refers to the Old Testament. And Jesus is very clear, he did not come to abolish or destroy the Old Testament, but to fulfill them. In fact, the law will not pass away before the end of the world, not even the smallest letters of the Old Testament. If you're familiar with older translations, this is where we'd see jot and tittle. But here we have iota and dot. Now just to help you picture this, in your own lives, think of our uh, lowercase i in our alphabet. 
Okay, an iota, which is sort of the Greek equivalent to I, is really just a lowercase i without the dot. And then, as the ESV says here, dot, you know, you think of the small stroke and a dot, so what we call the letter I. But not even that. The smallest segment of God's word will pass away. Now, we need to take a moment and think, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? A couple of things we need to know. Number one, this fits the theme of Jesus talks about where the Old Testament points forward to his coming and his death and resurrection. So famously, we have Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. A part of this theme also comes times in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus fulfilling prophecy. So from Matthew, earlier in the book, Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. So Jesus fulfills the Old Testament by fulfilling the promises and prophecies made the Old Testament. Secondly, we also see where Jesus fulfills laws by making them obsolete. Their work of being used as physical reminders of spiritual truth was completed, and therefore they could be done away with. Two examples, one is the sacrificial system we read in Hebrews chapter 10. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that we will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So Jesus' sacrifice brought an end completed, made obsolete, the animal sacrifices of the temple. We also see this in Mark chapter 7. And Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean." Jesus, as a part of his ministry, declared the end, the fulfillment of some of the dietary laws. So if anyone asks you, why do you believe in the Old Testament but you still eat shrimp? Mark 7. And one of the reasons I want to take some time with this is because charges can be brought against us for so-called picking and choosing which Old Testament law we follow. But a part of what informs us and has informed Christians since the beginning of Christianity is how Jesus fulfills these laws in different ways and how the Gospels show us and the other New Testament books show us how this is. And that leads to the last thing is that Jesus also fulfills the Old Testament by affirming much of the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to erase the Old Testament but to fulfill and affirm it. And one of the ways we see this is when Jesus quotes the Old Testament. Now, in the following verses that we'll get to in the coming weeks, Jesus affirms laws of the Old Testament. Example would be commands against murder and adultery. But another helpful example of this is the story of the rich young ruler. Let me read from Matthew chapter 19. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. 
He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes extensively from the Ten Commandments and from other parts of the Old Testament. And it is clear that he viewed what we call the Old Testament as the inspired word of God that found its fulfillment in him. And again, as a commercial for the next couple of weeks, Jesus will display his authority in explaining and in sometimes intensifying the application of these commandments later in the Sermon on the Mount. But for our purposes today, we need to see that Jesus views the Old Testament as the Word of God, which finds its fulfillment in him. Therefore, let's look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will follow the word of God even to the least of these commandments. And it may feel oversimplified to say, but this is what the text is saying to us. If you belong to Jesus, you will follow his word. The grace of Jesus does not abolish the commands God has given. And it's important to note that in this specific context, the distinction here is not between unbelievers and believers, but between believers and believers. There are other passages that speak to the differences between unbelievers and believers. But here, Jesus is showing the different aspect to our status as followers of him, who is great in the kingdom of heaven. This speaks to the idea that followers of Jesus are rewarded for what they have done. And in God's kingdom, there can be differences in reward. If you want to be great in God's economy, do two things. One, live according to God's commands and teach others to do the same. God is going to judge how you, what you have done with what he has given you. And if you want to be found as doing the right thing and being rewarded for it, then live a life according to the word of God and teach others to do the same. And I love that Jesus includes teaching others. It's not enough to only be concerned with your own life as a disciple. Jesus wants you to teach, train, and encourage others in their faith. It's a connective tissue to the previous part of the passage, that your spiritual life is not just for you. You are living out in your world, and you are to be living your faith in relationship with others. But we also need to take time to notice the standard here that Jesus ends the section with in verse 20. Look at that verse with me again. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
We need to grapple with the standard that Jesus sets for his followers. It's living according to all the commandments, not just the ones we like. It is not relaxing the standard. As I mentioned last week, at the end of verse of chapter 5, the standard is actually the perfection of God himself. Verse 48 of chapter 5. But when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, one of the Beatitudes, we are engaged in the lifelong pursuit of the holiness of God. And this is described as following all the commands and details of God's word, but it also is described as needing to be better than the best. Jesus says we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. About this, one author writes, while their multiplication of regulations could engender a good society, it domesticated the law and lost the radical demand for the absolute holiness demanded by the scriptures. This reminds us that we need a righteousness that we cannot attain on our own. And thankfully, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are given a righteousness greater than the best keepers of the law. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we see this at the very same time, a call to live radical lives of holiness and righteousness. While at the same time, comforting us with the fact that through faith in Jesus, we are made righteousness and reconciled to a holy God. A couple thoughts as we close this morning. Sort of in the form of of questions this morning. Number one, are you living out your faith as a life of witness? Are you salt preserving and flavoring your world? Are you letting your light shine or are you hiding under a bushel? When people see how you live, does it cause them to worship God? Secondly, are you living according to the word of God? Jesus honored the Bible as the words of God. And Jesus, as your king, makes demands on your life. He has told you how to live through his word. Will you follow that word? Thirdly, are you living out your faith in a way that teaches, trains, and encourages others to follow Jesus? One unique part of this passage is that God cares how you lead others to follow him. You will be held accountable for whether or not you taught or encouraged others to follow Jesus and his word. Our lives of following Jesus are not lived in a vacuum or in isolation. God rewards his people who care enough about others to teach, train, and encourage them to follow Jesus. 
And finally, number four, do you need to place your faith in Jesus and receive his righteousness? It is only through receiving Christ through receiving Christ's righteousness through repentance and faith that we can be reconciled to God and have the hope of eternal life. You cannot live a life more righteous than the Pharisees by sheer will and choice. These guys literally tithed their spices. There is only one way to be made righteous, and that is through repentance of sin and personal faith in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you are made righteous, not just for today, but now and into eternity. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. That you would use your word today to encourage us to live out our faith in this world as salt and light. That we would live according to your word from the greatest of the commands to the least of the commands. And God, that we would come humbly before you in repentance and faith to receive the righteousness of Christ by which we are forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and have the hope of eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.